I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of the attack on September 11 on the World Trade Center. And I was struck by how much time had gone. The fact that it had been 20 years since that day. It's interesting to me to think back on something that um, for many of us uh, who experience that, even if only on the outside, even as uh, together as a, a nation or even internationally on the world stage, just witnessing something like that, um, to see something recede into memory and recede into history the very idea that there are people now who going onward will be in their 20s uh, who either were too young to know what was going on or hadn't even been born yet. And that's, that's fascinating to me to see, to see that shift as something becomes history. Now, on that day uh, 20 years ago, uh, to some of our, our older members, it might seem funny, but uh, I was in high school at the time. I was 15, almost 16 years old. And I remember that day being very panicky uh, as people weren't sure what was going on. I remember people crying in, in the hallways at school and nothing was done that day. Every class we were just watching the news, seeing what was happening. But I also remember being uh, this edgy 15-year-old that really wanted to be sophisticated and philosophical. So that day and the days that followed, I didn't necessarily make a lot of friends uh, in the sense that I could understand that a tragedy had happened, but I suppose I hadn't been all that surprised that it happened. And I looked at some of the people around me that behaved as if uh, terrorism had been born that day, like terrorism hadn't existed around the world before then, like other countries hadn't suffered horrific things like that, and gone through such um, terrible loss of, of life and, and uh, terrible loss of a lot of things. And I, I remember people getting upset because there was this uh, rampant nationalism that began to take hold. And I don't know if anyone remembers the, uh, the amount of flags that were sold around, around everywhere so people could put flags on their car. That was the big thing. Everyone had some flag flapping in the wind on their truck and everything, on their car or whatever. And people very much quickly signed up uh, to join the military. I had a lot of friends in high school who did that. Friends of mine who had been seniors that graduated and then successive years after that going into the military. 
and it's it's an odd thing to to look at and and see in that way and watch it become something over time and then to witness too how tragedy keeps happening in different ways within our lives to see that even just a couple years before then the columbine uh, massacre at the at, at, a, at the columbine high school had happened and the years since and then even now living in in this pandemic where uh, it seems like there's a tragedy happening every single day. And there's a lot that we could say um, c- kind of on the international stage. And there's a lot that we can say nationally as well, societally. But then there's the way that these events affect us and the, and the way that we affect the world afterward that happens on a much more personal level. The, the kind of tragedies that we all carry in our hearts. And not just the big stuff like that, but the things that seem possibly much smaller, but perhaps uh, more directly impactful on our lives. You know, the, the secret tragedies that we carry that after our deaths, no one will even know took place. The secret shames we might carry in our hearts, the secret doubts that we might have, all of these things that we carry the losses that we have. And we find that everyone experiences loss. I'm reminded of a, a teaching the Buddha gave to a, uh, a woman who approached him with her dead son in her arms. And she had asked the Buddha if there was a way of bringing her child back. And the Buddha instructed her to go find a mustard seed, and that that then he would give her his answer. And to really understand India at the time, you'd have to know that mustard seed was a very common ingredient in cooking at the time. It was like telling someone, well, oh, you want your son back? Well, go find a household that has some salt, right, or some pepper. You know, it's something that common. And he also added, but make sure, though, that whatever mustard seed you, you get is from a household that has never experienced loss, never experienced death. And so this woman goes from house to house. And she knocks on, on the door. Someone answers. And then she asks, could you please give me some mustard seed? And in each house, the person says, oh, right away, of course. I mean, we have plenty here. And she says, well, I have to, I have to make sure that the mustard seed is from a house that has not uh, sustained any, ever experienced any, any loss or, or death. Has, has anyone in this household died, right? Have you experienced death in your family? And without fail, every household says, well, yes, of, of course. And she goes this way from, from house to house in this village. And realizing along the way that every single house had experienced some kind of loss, some kind of tragedy, some kind of death. And so she then walks up to the, to the Buddha, revealing this to him, that indeed she could not find that mustard seed. And the lesson, of course, ends up being that anyone who's born is subject to sickness, old age, and death. And in the traditional sense in Buddhism, we would say that that realization gives way to uh, samvega, 
the realization that we're on a sinking ship and we want out, essentially. That Sangsara isn't all the things we thought and we want to find something better. The way the Buddha would say it is that we recognize then that Sangsara does not ultimately lead, ultimately lead to our long-term welfare and happiness. And so we might want to do something to ensure our long-term welfare and happiness. And so in that sense, we then try to approach the path. Which is to say that it can sound a little abstract when we talk about Samwega. This, this idea that we realize that uh, life the way we currently live it may not give us the kind of happiness that is long-lasting. And so here's this promise to follow the path, and don't worry, that'll lead to happiness. But sometimes that kind of abstract lesson really doesn't, doesn't hit home. Because what we really want to know is how to deal with what we're feeling right now. The kind of feelings we have right now in regard to greed, aversion, delusion, but also just the pains we carry these heavy hearts that we have. Because life has given us challenges. Life has given us experiences and painful memories. We have experienced loss, every single one of us. And what do we do with that? There can be so much confusion that we see in the world as, as people grab, grapple with loss and try to figure out what to do and how to react and how to be and how to move onward. And we see that even now in the, in the case of this pandemic with people not really knowing what to do and how to go onward. As more people get sick, as the death toll number gets higher, there's a sense of, of wanting to put it behind us and act like it's all over. There's a lot of doom and gloom about acting how this is going to be the way it is forever and so we might as well get used to it. A lot of resignation and a lot of things, mostly confusion. There's a lot of things that currently confuse me about the state of the world. For example, I was having uh, coffee with my wife this morning and found out that, uh, when you know it, uh, September 1st was when Texas uh, put into effect a new bill that allows people to uh, carry handguns without a background check, without training, or without a permit. So I guess when you're in the grocery store buying your bacon and eggs, you can also go ahead and just buy a handgun and strap that to your belt on the way out because that's how important they think it is to maintain the Second Amendment. And I don't want to get into the particulars of that, um, only to say that some regulation might be good. I mean, we certainly have regulations in terms of driving. It would make sense to have some in terms of gun ownership. But those are the kind of things that end up con confusing me when I look at the world. And it can be quite disappointing to see how the world is, to see how people are, to see the kind of things that we feel we can't change. And the Buddha's lesson to us when we are confronted with that reality is that at the very least, we can start turning our attention inward and see what we can change about ourselves to see what we can do to alleviate the suffering that we feel. And in the process of healing our heavy hearts and making them lighter, we often find ways 
to lessen the burden of others around us as well. Oftentimes not to the extent that we would wish, uh, but enough in a way that, that hopefully helps, that hopefully improves the lives of our, our loved ones and, and maybe even further if we can. But then how do we do that? How do we go about lessening the burdens of the heart? We know that we have the Eightfold Path. We know that we're supposed to have right view, right resolve, and all of that. We know that we're supposed to be uh, meditating to be good Buddhists. And that's all true. But what we do with that meditation and what we do with our actions really does matter. That's honestly what, what changes uh, our hearts, what begins to do that healing. You know, if the Buddha is a physician, which is oftentimes the way he was talked about during his lifetime, then the Dharma is the medicine that we take. But we need to make sure that we're actually taking the medicine in the right way, the right dosage, the right amount, right? You don't take a, a pill that's meant to be in your mouth and put it somewhere else. You know, you got to use it the right way. It's often the, the case that we talk about, uh, as an example, the five hindrances. And if you don't know what the five hindrances are, they are uh, sensual pleasure or sensual desire, ill will, Sloth and drowsiness, restlessness and anxiety, and doubt. And the way we often talk about these hindrances as simply hindrances to, to meditation. We think about them as things that get in the way of, of having a nice, relaxed, and peaceful, and pleasant meditation. And that's true. That is indeed one way of looking at the hindrances. But when we look at how the Buddha would apply those teachings and how he would share them with his students, it's far more than simply hindrances to proper meditation. The Buddha talked about them as also hindrances to uh, a good rebirth, so a hindrance to how one approaches death. But also that means the way one approaches life a hindrance to living a good life, and also a hindrance to achieving the goal, to becoming liberated, to becoming free. Sometimes we think of the hindrances as something that we're doing wrong, as something that we can, um, I suppose, especially for, for those of us with like a Christian or a Catholic background, assume that they're a lot like uh, sins or faults of character. And the same way we're born with original sin, we're born with these hindrances that get in the way. But I think it's appropriate more to look at the hindrances as uh, coping mechanisms that we all have in the face of our lives, in the face of what life gives us, all the good and bad that life gives us. And we always uh, find some way of coping, every single one of us. It just turns out that a lot of the ways we find to cope are very similar to each other, so we can talk about them in broad categories, like the five hindrances. So we can take 
uh, for example, the you know the the attack on September 11. But we can also take as an example this pandemic and see the way that people have tried to cope with what's going on in their lives. The way that some people have coped through uh, sensual desire, or the way they've coped through ill will, or the way they've coped through sloth and drowsiness, the way they've coped with restlessness and anxiety, and the way they've coped with doubt. Doubt ends up being one of the hardest ones. The way it's traditionally taught, doubt in a, in a Buddhist sense as one of the five hindrances is, is doubt in the Dharma itself, doubt in the teachings of the Buddha. And some people take a, a metaphysical approach to this, the idea that, well, what you're really doubting is, is the Buddha as a teacher, you're doubting uh, karma and rebirth, you're doubting that there are heaven and hell realms, demons and hungry ghosts and devas and spirits, and how dare you doubt those things? You need to have more faith and confidence in the path. And to a certain extent, there, there's some validity in that, of, of how having doubt in karma can be uh, detrimental to the path. But I, what I think is far more common for many of us is having doubt in ourselves in trying to apply the path to our lives. Doubt in our capabilities, uh, doubt in, in terms of our self-worth. Especially if tragedy has affected us in the past and we don't believe that we handled things skillfully or in the best way. If we have some shame or remorse in how we responded, then that can easily lead to doubt in terms of our ability to ever truly be wise or to be compassionate or to be friendly and kind or to be liberated, to be free of greed, anger, and delusion. The whole premise of being liberated seems so far out of reach sometimes, and it's easy to doubt our own self-worth, our own goodness. In light of that, we can look to what the Buddha said about all of us and our potential that when he talks about these qualities of mind that we seek to cultivate in ourselves, like loving-kindness and compassion, like wisdom and discernment, mindfulness, that those are things already in us to a lesser or greater degree. That all of us in this human existence are working with uh, more or less the same cards, the same tools the same potential to become liberated. And those might seem like just words, like empty statements. But one of the things that we do when we, when we sit to contemplate and sit to meditate and really look at how we're developing the path is to look at our past truly and fully. And because of the way our brains work, I mean, you see these as memes on, on the internet all the time, is how, how the memory works in terms of good things that you've done in your life, and it's sort of like drawing in the sand as you're making memories. The, the waves will come in and just wash all those good things away. But every embarrassing and awful thing you've ever done, it's like it's 
etched and carved in stone with like a laser or something that will stand the test of time. All the bad things you've done will go on in history forever. Everyone's going to remember that lie you told in first grade or how in second grade someone saw you pick your nose or something. You know, that's the stuff that everyone's going to remember. And the truth is, we've all done good. We've all done bad. We've all done things that would be applauded by the wise and denounced by the wise. Every single one of us. But when we look at ourselves and we, when we look at our actions, we can see the times that we have been skillful. That when we have responded appropriately, when we have had a reserve of strength to share with others, when we have been that ear for someone who needed some, someone to talk to, when we've been a support, but also when we've made sure to love and nurture and care for ourselves, when we've been a support and a skillful friend to ourselves. For every single one of us, there are moments like that, even if only a moment, even if it was for just one minute in your life that you saw something good about yourself. That is a seed with which you can grow. That is a seed that you can plant and water and fertilize and watch it take life. Every single one of us has a moment like that. And oftentimes, several more all the way through. I was talking before about samwega, the sense that we have of wanting to escape suffering, escape samsada. And the Buddha said that if we had the ability to recall all of our past lives, we would know how much blood has been spilt by us and through us, how it would fill the oceans. We would know all the tears that we've shed and how many oceans those would fill, and so on. But we would also know all the good that we have the potential to do, all the good that we have the potential to be. And so that's one way of counteracting the doubt that we feel in regard to ourselves and our own self-worth as a person, especially in dark times, in troubled times when the world itself seems unfixable, when the world itself seems on fire, we can then at that point turn inward and investigate the good in us and work on growing that good and then sharing it with others. And so as we work with doubt, we're able to look at all the other things that we do as a way of coping you know, these aren't bad things. These aren't sinful things. It's really easy to look at them that way because of culture, Eastern and Western. We have this culture that, that looks at these things as character flaws rather than things that we've done oftentimes to protect ourselves from hurt and pain and loss. You know, uh, sensual desire being one, one case that we can have where for every single person that during the pandemic became a, a gym rat and went to the, you know, worked out in their backyard, turned their backyard into a gym or went running miles, there were a lot of people that to cope with what was going on decided that the best way was to have movie marathons and order pizza like three times a week. And neither one is, is good or bad. But we can see how what we do is often to protect ourselves, protect our, our identity, protect our, our self-worth, to protect our image, 
or to even just protect our heart because of all the pain it has within it. And we reach out trying to find ways to alleviate that pain. The Buddha talks about it in terms of food, that really what we have are hungry hearts. And we're constantly trying to reach out and find things to feed the heart, to nourish it, to give it nutriment. But in that frenzy, in that panic, as we're trying to soothe the heart and its hunger, we reach out to any kind of food. So sensual desire is one way, but also ill will. What has really struck me, not only 20 years ago, but now, is our ability to try to find someone to blame, someone to be angry at, someone who is responsible, someone who is the enemy. And it can be the case that we decide it's someone on the outside, be it another country, be it our own, be it certain people within the country. I remember that uh, 20 years ago, I was growing up in a pre predominantly Hispanic neighborhood where a lot of Hispanic people were beaten up because they were assumed to be Middle Eastern of, you know, of various descent that people were angry with at the time, which is not too dissimilar to what's happened within the last year or so amongst uh, Asian Americans. But there's also the ill will that we carry on the inside. You don't have to look very far uh, at all to, to see people who genuinely despise themselves or parts of themselves, who, when they look in, are disgusted at what they see, disgusted with what they've said, disgusted with what they've done. And part of combating ill will is looking in and combating the ill will that's there that you have towards yourself. That in the practice of the Brahma Viharas and developing loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity, we start with ourselves and spread outward in all directions. That's how the Buddha taught it. And it has to be with ourselves. We have to find a way to embrace the parts of ourselves that we'd rather push away, hide, that we'd rather revile and hate. I have found it difficult myself to uh, have goodwill for others if I don't have goodwill for myself. And oftentimes, because of the way psychology works, because it's always a lot of fun, oftentimes the things we hate in others are the very things we hate in ourselves. So I have taken that as part of my practice, is that when I see something in someone else that really gets me going, that really makes me angry, that fills me with that kind of vitriol, or even in a milder sense, just something that I very dislike in a person. Sometimes, if I look close enough, I see that some of those things that I'm really upset about are things that I'm upset about in regard to myself, the way I have been, the way I can be, if I'm not careful enough. And so there is that practice of finding that goodwill for yourself. As I said before, one way is recognizing that we're not any one thing, that we're a lot of different things, including very good and beautiful things. But part of it, too, is seeing those parts about yourself that maybe you're not very enviable and finding a way to love those parts anyway, to embrace those parts anyway. And if we can do things like that, 
then we can begin to turn to other things like sloth and torpor is one way of translating, but also sloth and uh, drowsiness and finding ways to energize our practice. And one of the ways we can energize our practice is to move away from an abstraction, move away from the practice as a philosophy to be memorized, which can be challenging, especially in the Theravada tradition where we have the whole Pali canon with a lot of lists and a lot of chapters and a lot of things that people want to memorize and know. And that's important. Uh, Part of the work that I do uh, as a graduate student is spending a lot of time reading the Pali canon. But it's also important to remember that everything that the Buddha taught, everything that he taught, was meant to be practice, meant for doing, meant to be action, meant to be applied, which requires a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of persistence, a certain amount of willing to do even when it feels hard, in a gentle way. One of my teachers refers to it as a a gentle touch, right? a gentle effort. Uh, I've sometimes phrased it as like an effortless effort, but maybe that sounds too casual, even though it fits in quite nicely in California. But there is this sense of, of being gentle with yourself, but being persistent, having enough energy. Restlessness and anxiety then become something very interesting too, because when we only think of restlessness and anxiety as detrimental to meditation, then we just assume that some guy sitting around with restless leg syndrome, there's that guy not meditating well. Whereas restlessness and anxiety have a much larger scope, not only in terms of meditation, but how we live. That restlessness often has a lot to do with the regrets we have about the past. The regrets of what we've done and how we've done it. And even in the present, restlessness in regards of what we think we might be doing and how we're doing it. And getting so caught up in it that not recognizing that we have this present moment to act. That one of the things we can do with the past is at the very least make it a lesson, a point of reflection in how we approach the present. And then that becomes a powerful switch in in terms of how we approach the past. Rather as something to lament, something to mourn, something tragic to carry around with us like a burden it becomes something that we can apply directly to the present moment. And that lessens the burden, even right there in in itself, to see the lessons. Even if the lesson itself is realizing, you know what, in the past, I really messed up. I'm going to put a lot of energy into not making that same mistake. Even that acknowledgement can be very freeing. Even that can start loosening up some of the darkness that we have in us to help them recede and help the light begin to shine more. Anxiety then becomes what we think about in terms of the future. We often think that because we've made mistakes in the past, that we're going to make the same mistakes in the present and the mistakes in the future as well. And the future becomes, again, a a place marked by shadow, a place marked by uncertainty, a place marked by fear. But then we come back to the present, realizing that the present is what we've got to work with. The present is where we can apply our determination. The present is where we can truly change and grow and act 
Because if the Buddhist path is an activity, it's an activity always happening right now. So with that, I'm going to uh, end with something I came across today, something that I shared four years ago on Facebook. So you know it's good. This is a quote by Bhante Gunaratana. And Bhante Gunaratana says, No one is uniquely bad. Everyone in the world has the same problems. Greed, anger, jealousy, pride, bad days, disappointments, and impatience. They all come to all unenlightened beings. When we make a habit of meeting the mind's many changes with compassion, the mind can relax. Then we can see more clearly and we can continue to grow in understanding. And I'll end with those words. Thank you.